This morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. It can be found on page 899 in the Pew Bible. Last week I titled the sermon on verses 1 through 11, O Worship the King, and our focus was on the verb of that hymn title, Worship. We considered the four secondary characters of the story, Mary, Martha, Judas, and Lazarus, and we saw that worship serves, adores, sacrifices, and witnesses. But we didn't much consider the noun of that hymn title. We considered Christ, but we didn't much consider Christ the King. That's what I want us to do this morning, as that is what our text is about. I take Mondays off. I try to be the one who does most of the errands in our home, so Melissa's not traipsing around getting groceries with five kids. That sounds miserable. So every other Monday morning, you will find me leaving before 8 o'clock, uh, heading on my bi-monthly BJ's run. I've got to load up the car and spend way too much money at BJ's. Um, and before the wonderfully convenient one opened just a mile, not even a mile up here in Woodside, I drove down every other Monday to the BJ's in Middle Village, and every time I would drive by Christ the King High School. Did anyone here attend Christ the King High School? Any alumnus, alumni of Christ the King. Nobody? Come on. Uh, it, it's a big school, and it's a, I know of it. I knew of it before I moved up here because it's a great basketball school with such alums as Sue Bird, one of the best women's players of all time, Speedy Claxton, Lamar Odom, and the most important person to ever attend Christ the King High School, Derek Phelps, point guard for the 1993 national champion North Carolina Tar Heels. So I just had to... Get that in there. Christ the King. Sorry. I love Latin phrases, and the motto of the school is Ut Omni Instarintur in Christo. I couldn't find their official translation of that, but it would be something like that all might be established in Christ. That all might be established in Christ. That's pretty good. And that is what I want for us. And the school's name rightly gets the idea that the Christ's in whom we are to be established, is Christ the King. And so does the Christ that you claim to know, is He Christ the King? Do you know Him as Christ the King? Do you submit to Him as Christ the King? Last week was worship. Is the Christ you claim to worship Christ the King? Next week we're going to read the request Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Or I love the old King James. Sir, we would see Jesus. That's what we just sang. That's what we want to see this morning. That's what we are going to see this morning. But things are not always as they appear. We just saw this last week with Judas. He was not what everyone thought that he was. Well, in a similar way, uh, but of course, in an entirely different way, it's the same with Jesus in this scene. He is not what everyone thought that he was. And whereas Judas is so much worse than what everyone thought, Jesus is so much better. So we are all of us looking and longing for a king. We were created for something bigger than us, someone bigger than us. We were created for the king. So who is this king and what is he like? Not what anyone would expect and not like any other king. Four points this morning to help us see Jesus Christ 
as the king, the king that you need. I had five, but because I love you, I cut the fifth one. So we've only got four. We're going to see that he is the king of control. He is the king of humility. He is the king of peace. And this sounds strange coming after number three, but he is also then the king of conflict. We want to see Christ. That's what we're going to see him as this morning. The king, control, humility, peace, conflict. Let's read. Uh, This, this is Christ the King. And this, this is one of the least understood stories in the Gospels, I would argue. So let's read it and consider it. John chapter 12. I'll be reading verses 12 through 19. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that, that, was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. If you would bow with me, let's begin this time uh, with a word of prayer, asking the Lord to help us. Father, we have uh, corporately sung, and now I pray and ask that you would show us Christ. We ask that you would reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Father, what a wonderful day it would be for every heart in here to confess that Christ is Lord. Father, work through your word. Father, I am a weak vessel. Father, your word is wonderfully powerful, living and active. Your word saves lives, changes eternities, and it does it all through revealing us uh, to us Christ. So I ask that you would do that now in this time. Father, help the preaching of your word, please. Father, help also the hearing of your word. Father, we need you to accomplish anything of value in this time. And so we ask that you would show us Christ through this word. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Point number one, we start first and see that Christ is the king of control. Where is that coming from? Well, we get our king theme from the end of verse 13. Look at it. Where the people cry out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That's going to be our main verse. That's going to be our main idea. We're going to keep circling back to kind of this central verse. We want to both unpack what they mean by that, what it actually means, and then how the two may not at all be the same. Uh, Again, this is arguably one of the most poorly understood stories in the gospel. You you see the heading there that the ESV gives the section, the triumphal entry, and this is basically how all of us know of this episode. And it's not entirely wrong, but it may not be the most helpful title. And it's important that we get this right. Because there's, you know, there are actually very few events in the Gospels that all four of the Gospels record. We, of course, have the crucifixion and the resurrection and all four. But of the other events, there's very few that all four record. This is one of those 
very few. That tells us that this is a particularly significant event. Well, what is it signifying? Maybe not what most people think. Let's get into it. In verse 12, we get our setting. We get the time and the place. Time, we're told, it's the next day. So, this is the day after Mary's anointing of Jesus. That means that most likely that this is Sunday. We are now only five days away from the death of Christ. The place, we're told, is Jerusalem. The Jerusalem he has formerly fled because they were trying to kill him. The Jerusalem the disciples were afraid to return to in the last chapter. The Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin has just met in verse 53 of the last chapter and made plans to put Jesus to death. And verse 57 published an order that if anyone knew where he was, they should let them know so that they could arrest him. Jesus is coming to that Jerusalem. And so the important question of this whole story is why? Your answer to that question, the why of this story, will determine how you interpret this event. Why is Jesus coming to Jerusalem? And why is he coming in the way that he does? Because this is different. This is entirely out of character for Christ up until this point in the story. You remember back to John chapter 6, there was another mob, a crowd perceiving that Jesus is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus' response then, John 6.15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. In chapter 7, verse 4, his brothers say to him, show yourself to the world. And Jesus says to them, no, for my time has not yet come. Jesus has been consistently avoiding public confrontation and coronation. He keeps departing and disappearing. He has gone out of his way to avoid the limelight. And now, all of a sudden, that changes entirely. Why? What is Jesus doing and why? If you grew up like I did in the more dispensational world, this story is taught as Jesus' final offer to Israel. This is Israel's last chance. Here I am. I'm the king. I'm presenting myself to you as the conquering king. This is your last chance to accept me. And so he parades in spectacularly in a manner befitting a king so that Israel would maybe finally see him as such and receive him. Again, I think that entirely misses the point of what's going on here. And it's ironic that this interpretation of these events makes the same mistake that the crowds are making. What is Jesus doing? Why does he come when he comes and as he comes? Well, first, it's because of our first point. To demonstrate that he is entirely in control of all that is and is going to happen. Earlier, they had proclaimed him king and he rejects it. Here, they proclaim him king and he accepts it. Why? Earlier, he told his brothers, my time has not yet come. Now he comes because his time has come. His time. We'll read in chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. You see, Jesus is operating according to his timetable, not theirs. Jesus is actively executing his will, not passively submitting to theirs. And let me be clear. Jesus loudly and visibly parades into the city to force the Pharisees' hand. 
And because He is the God of all power and all control, the Sovereign One. Remember, sovereignty is a king word. We refer to kings as sovereigns because kings have the power and authority. And so here in this scene, in all the scenes to follow, we have the King, Jesus, with all the power and all the authority. And because the very purpose for His coming was His death, and since He has determined that it is now time for that death, He is making it impossible for the religious authorities not to act. He is bringing about His own death in His own way on His own schedule. He is the King. And He is proclaiming Himself as such. But He is proclaiming Himself as such so that they will come for Him and kill Him. For that is why He comes. And that is why he enters as he does. He's forcing the issue. He is orchestrating this whole scene for his good and glorious purposes. And so we start with the control of the king. Again, I won't belabor this point because I belabor it a lot. But you you need a robust theology of God's sovereignty and providence. And it's critical for your day-to-day life. You need to seek to live in light of the fact that he really is the king and that he really is in control of all things. And that if you are his, he is in control of all of them for your good. There is no more comforting truth. God is in control. God is good. God is in control. God is good. If you could live in light of those two things, it would change everything. Don't things so often feel so out of control? Be reminded. Be encouraged. Things are not always as they appear. Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing can happen to you outside of his control. Consider his control. Meditate on it. Seek to live in light of it. He is the king. And thus he has all authority and all power. For that's what it means to be a king. But it's that P word again. It's a dirty word these days. Power. We are power averse because we have experienced so many who are power perverse. Well, let's see how this king uses his power. Let's keep moving through the story because the picture presented here is of a king that we would never expect. A king that we could have never created. Ever. Again, the story, I love the line. It would have taken a Jesus to create a Jesus. There is no one like this king. So he is the king of control. But, or, and, he is the king of humility. Back to the text. Twice in verse 9 and in verse 12, we see John emphasize the large crowd. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus, remember he lived at this time, he writes his long history. He claims that at one such Passover, around this time, that there were over two and a half million people in Jerusalem. Assuming that's a pretty large exaggeration, With the population of the city at that time, about 100,000 people, it's at least quite possible that the crowds would have been upwards of a million people. And Jerusalem is not a big city. So this is a lot of people in not a lot of space. This is quite the crowd. And that crowd hears that Jesus is coming. What do they do? Verse 13, again. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is is quite a scene. This is quite a spectacle. And let's be honest, we love spectacle. 
Most movies and TV shows these days are nothing more than spectacle. They just try to get as bigger, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as possible. We are spectacle obsessed. We are a society of the spectacle. What is a spectacle? It's just something showy. It's something impressive, extravagant, flashy, visually. It's like, it's like visually captivating scene. It's showy, but it's surfacy showy. There's generally not a lot of depth to it. Its focus is almost entirely on appearance. That which is unexpected, shocking, extravagant, absurd. Uh, that which will thus grab and hold your attention. We love spectacle. And this is a spectacle. And the crowd would not have been unfamiliar with what's going on here. Because they loved spectacle too. They are currently part of the Roman Empire. And the Romans loved spectacle. I mean, I complained about the heading the ESV gives this passage earlier. But here's where it's correct. This is a triumphal entry. Literally in the sense that this whole thing is modeled after what was called back then a Roman Triumph. This was a fairly common occurrence 2,000 years ago. Were you to go and travel around the Mediterranean, you could go today and visit about 40 different surviving Roman triumphal arches. These big, massive, think of Washington Square Park, right? At the north part of the park, you have Washington's arch celebrating, commemorating his uh, first. Um, inauguration, that arch is modeled after a Roman triumph. And it is specifically modeled after one of the most famous, which is called the Arch of Titus, built in the year 81 AD. And it can still be found today in the heart of Rome. You can go and see it. And the Arch of Titus is a commemoration of the general Titus who would become emperor. And it's in celebration of his victory over the Jewish rebellion in 70 AD that results in the destruction of Israel and the temple. An event that Jesus prophesies in this whole scene uh, in, in some of the other accounts. But if you were to go and look at Titus's arch, you would see it. Uh, there's this depiction of this big parade. That's what a Roman triumph was. It was like a giant parade. So he conquers Jerusalem in 70. In 71, he parades into Rome. And it was this like spectacle of a victory parade. The conquering Caesar or general would parade into the city. You'd have the defeated army, the defeated officers going first. Then you'd have all the spoils of war. Then you would have the Senate. And then you would have uh, the, the victor himself. And if you were to look at Titus's arch, you will see them parading through the streets with a big giant golden menorah and trumpets and the pans and all these various things that were taken from the temple. And on Titus's arch, then you see Titus, and there's these four grand horses and a chariot. And then there's Titus himself. And behind Titus is the goddess Victoria, or Nike, Nico, you can think of Nico, named after Nike. Um, and Victoria, the goddess of victory, is, is crowning Titus king. It's very grand and impressive and showy. He is the conquering king. And the inscription on the arch, almost 2,000 years old, says the Senate and the Roman people dedicate this to the deified Titus Vespasian Augustus. That's a spectacle. It's a show. That's what these things were about. There were these long, elaborate parades that were about the utter debasement of the defeated, often chained and walking naked 
through the streets. And then the total exaltation and deification of the conquering king, grandly glorified through this spectacle. And here we have Jesus submitting himself to a similar spectacle. And don't forget point one. Don't forget that Jesus is in control. He's allowing this. He is orchestrating this. And again, the question is, why? Verse 14. I want to come back to 13 in a moment. Verse 14. Everyone is getting stirred up. Anticipation is building. If you've ever been caught in a crowd getting kind of stirred up, it's, it's unsettling and big and uncontrollable. The spectacle is growing. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Stop. That's strange. Again, not what you would expect in a triumphal entry. Again, Titus, as I said, there's these four grand horses pulling him in this great chariot. Josephus was actually at that triumph, and he tells us about it. He describes it. He keeps repeating the phrase, the, the pompous show. But at the very end, he writes, oh, Domitian, Domitian, which was Titus's brother, who would be the next emperor, he says, Domitian made a glorious appearance and rode on a horse that was worthy of admiration. That's a triumph. And here's Jesus sitting on a donkey. Again, it's not what you would expect. But there's actually some debate about the symbolic significance of this. This is where our second point is coming from. The king of humility. But some would argue that that's not what is signified by the donkey. We'll consider that next. But keep reading. Verse 14. Why a donkey? Why is Jesus doing what he is doing and, and how he is doing it? Well, because he's in control and in fulfillment of the scriptures. He sits on the donkey just as it is written. Verse 14. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. All right, so confirmation, they're not wrong. He is the king. That's not in question. The question is, is he the kind of king that they are looking for? John is here utilizing a quotation from the prophet Zechariah, written 500 years before this. Chapter 9, verse 9, if you want to look at it. Page 797. Let's consider for a moment Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is what John is using. 797. Zechariah 9, verse 9 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's where I'm taking the humility from. Whether or not the donkey signifies that, we're coming back to that. Zechariah 9.9 states it. The king is coming and he is a humble king. Not usually what we think of when we think of kings. We usually think of power and strength of grandeur and glory, of wealth and extravagance. We think spectacle. But humble is not spectacle. Again, I won't stay here because we're going to hit this hard in chapter 13. The second part of the book, the book of glory, starts with this king, Jesus, loving his own to the end. It starts with this king laying aside his outer garments, taking a towel, 
tying it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wrapped around him. That's the king. That's the king of humility. That's the highest getting the lowest. That's how he uses his power in the service of his people. See, power is never the problem. It's who has that power and what they do with it. This is what this king, the king who has all the power, this is what the king does with it. He serves his people. And that connects directly to why Jesus is doing what he's doing back in our story. He serves his people, we know ultimately, by dying for his people. Love seeks the good of the loved. Love serves. Our highest good, our ultimate need, is not all the little things that we all have right now, some significant, some minor. We all have needs and things, but our ultimate need is the forgiveness of sins and freedom from the death that we owe. That's what Jesus is parading in to do, to die. And that's what the crowd is missing entirely. And that's what we cannot miss. Remember back to last week in our discussion of worship. Both the Hebrew and Greek words for worship are low words. Worship is it's, it's getting low. It's, it's bowing down. Worship is the recognition of the infinite worth of God. The infinite majesty of the Lord and responding accordingly. He is God. I am not. He is high. I am low. Everything I think, say, and do should be done with that in mind. I am to honor Him, adore Him, fear Him, follow him that's worship but do you know what most arouses such worship it's the grace given realization that this the highest god of glory philippians 2 7 emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. You see, we gladly get low in worship because he got low in death. Behold your king. This is very much a story of glory, but it is a story of hidden glory. And remember our John Owen. It's a sight of the glory of Christ that is the universal cure, the comfort for all that ails us. Show us Christ. That's the one thing that we need. See his glory here, humbled, seated on a donkey. But we're going to get to that in chapter 13. That whole donkey thing means even more than humble. Point number three, because he is also the king of peace. I think that's probably the main thing being communicated by the donkey. They, they didn't think of donkeys the same way that we do today. We think a lot of dogs. They thought very little of dogs. They thought a lot of donkeys. We think very little of donkeys. Right, don't think Eeyore. Don't think stupid, smelly, stubby, little mule. We actually, if you know your Old Testament, we encounter donkeys a number of times in the Hebrew Scriptures, and they are quite often princely and kingly mounts. In Judges 12.10, the judge Abdon had... 40 sons and 30 grandsons. I can't have one son. This guy had 40. 40 sons and 30 grandsons. And they rode on 70 donkeys. 
In 2 Samuel 18.9, Absalom, who at the time is the king, again, he's the imposter king, but he's the king, and he's riding on a donkey when it is maybe his famous hair that is his downfall. And in 1 Kings 1.14, when David declares Solomon king, he has Solomon ride through the streets of Jerusalem on his own, the king's donkey. And remember, why couldn't David build God's temple? 1 Corinthians 22.8, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name. You know, we're told a lot about Solomon. Do you know what we're basically told nothing about when it comes to Solomon? War. No, there's just really no mention of it with Solomon. The very next verse, 1 Chronicles 22.9, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. That's what the donkey is a symbol of. The donkey is a symbol of peace. Kings rode horses and they were mounts for wars and kings rode donkeys and they were mounts for peace. Back to the prophecy of Zechariah 9. Again, 797 if you want to look at it. John quotes only from verse 9, but often when the New Testament uses a reference from the Old, it's referencing kind of the whole context of the quote as well. So look at what follows Zechariah 9, verse 9. Look at verse 10. Why should Jerusalem rejoice? Or the king's coming. He's mounted on a donkey. But what's he coming to do? Zechariah 9, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Peace. You're just looking at Zechariah 9, those two verses, what a picture of this king we're given. He's humble, he's righteous, he has salvation, he speaks peace. Again, here's the question. What kind of salvation does he have? What kind of peace does he speak? Because that's the great and tragic irony of this whole scene. If you want to, look, let's look quickly at Luke's account of this. If you want to jump ahead to Luke chapter 19, now we're on page 879. So you go from 797 to 879, Luke 19. I think Luke adds something important here. Luke 19. We've already seen that this would have been a massive crowd. This is a long procession. This would have taken a long time. So there would have been shouting and chanting and and many more things than just the line that John reports. Luke adds this in chapter 19, verse 38. He adds that the crowds were saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in heaven the highest. You see, they're proclaiming peace. Again, this is great, right? They're, they're pro- praising the Lord. They're worshiping the King. They're proclaiming peace. But look at Christ's response to all this. Look at verse 41 of Luke 19. Yeah, this is in the middle of the pompous parade. How does he perceive what's going on? How does he respond to the response of the people? And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. See the direct connection, the peace and the peace? 
They look like they're praising. They're proclaiming peace. Jesus weeps. Jesus laments that they have no idea what makes for peace and where peace is found and what kind of peace he brings. And then he goes on to prophesy and then symbolically act out the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple, the very thing that the the Arch of Titus commemorates. Jesus predicted it. But they don't get it. They don't understand what's going on. And that's made very evident back in our text. Let's look at 13 one last time. Back to John 12, verse 13. 899, John 12, verse 13. They're crying out, Hosanna. What does that mean? Well, if you were to go back and check the Greek, you'd find that the word is Hosanna. And it's a quote from the Old Testament. Psalm 118, verse 25, where you to go back and check the Hebrew, you'd find that the word is Hosanna. This is a transliteration, right? This is not a translation. A transliteration is where you just lift a word from one language and then add it to another language. And the Hebrew means something simply like just help or, or save now. It had at that time become a fairly generic shout of praise or worship, sort of how we use hallelujah now without actually really knowing what it means. Well, hallelujah just means praise Yahweh, praise, praise God. Hosanna was like that, but at its root was this call for salvation, for help, for assistance, for aid. It comes from Psalm 118, it's verse 25, and it reads, Save us, we pray, O Lord. And Psalm 118 is part of what are called the Hallel Psalms. Hal-el. El is God. So Hal praise God. So Hallelujah, praise Yahweh. Hal-el, praise God. And then these Psalms, 113 to 118, were the pilgrim Psalms. These were the Psalms of praise that were sung by those who would have been on the way to celebrate uh, Passover. These are Psalms that Jesus himself would have sung. Uh, probably on the night he was betrayed, he probably sang Psalm 118. And the psalm opens like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 14 says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Verse 15 says, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Verse 21 says, you have become my salvation. The Psalm 118 is a salvation song. And it's what the people are singing as Jesus parades into the city. But again, what kind of salvation do they, do they want? Verse 13 tells us. Because they were not just crying out, Hosanna. But whatever they were doing, whatever they were singing and proclaiming, they were doing it all accompanied by branches of palm trees. And thus, this is where we get our name for this day today, Palm Sunday. Hold on. Why palms? What is the significance of the palms? And this is really important. Symbols have meaning. Symbols communicate. So we need to be careful with our symbols, what we communicate uh, with them. Most of us aren't running around wearing rainbows anymore because that symbol has been sadly co-opted to mean something contrary to God's good word and will. Symbols matter. And the palm was a very significant symbol back then. Josephus 
tells us about this. There are a number of other sources that tell us about this. We've talked recently about uh, the Maccabees. You know, Hanukkah comes from Judas Maccabees. They took back the temple, overthrew um, the, the Seleucids back in 164 B.C. And from that time on, the celebration and the symbol of all of this uh, activity became the palm branches. And the palm at that time very specifically became a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Eventually, in the rebellion that would lead to Titus sweeping in and overthrowing the city, the insurrectionists would print their own coins. And so just like we have a quarter and on the back of it is an eagle, an important American symbol, on the back of their coin they printed it with the palm as their symbol. This was a sign of the nation, of, of Israel, of the people, of their political hopes, of the ruler that they longed for to lead them to such a military, political, conquering king. That's why palm branches. That's what's being communicated with the palm branches. This had a very specific meaning. And so, it's somewhat ironic that we continue to call the celebration of this event Palm Sunday. And that many churches actually incorporate palm fronds into their services. We've missed the point of the palm fronds. John is calling attention to them to highlight not that the crowds had a true understanding of Jesus, desirous to worship Jesus for who he is and what he has come to do, but he uses the palm specifically to highlight that the crowds entirely misunderstood who Jesus is and what he has come to do. The palms are symbols of their error. The palms are symbolic of the fact, going back to last week and the truth that we're always worshiping, either the Lord or ourselves. the palm fronds are symbolic of the fact that the people that made up these riotous crowds were actually worshiping themselves. They wanted Jesus for what they thought he could do for them. The palms proved that they only wanted a political military liberator, a king for their own sakes so that they could live their best lives now. Maybe we shouldn't use the palms so much. It's not a symbol of worship. It's a symbol of error. It doesn't represent victory. It represents failure. John employs irony quite effectively here, and it is ironic that we continue to use these symbols that John is using ironically. The people very much wanted this to be a triumphal entry in the pattern of the Romans. They, Jesus, yes, come, be our longed-for military, political, conquering king. Come, overthrow the Romans. They'd seen the signs. They had recognized the power, but it was a power they hoped to harness for their own political purposes. And so they waved their palm branches to symbolize what they want Jesus to be. And then in the midst of all of that, Jesus gets on a donkey. That's huge. Keep in mind, Jesus didn't ride the donkey the whole way. It seems that he walked much of the way, and then he gets on the donkey. Maybe at the height of the nationalistic fervor, as everything rises to a fever pitch, palm branches, save us, here comes the king to kill the Romans, Jesus gets on a donkey, which represents peace. And this, by the way, is the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus rides anything. It's the only time. He walks everywhere. The only thing that carries him is this donkey, and the only thing that he carries 
chapter 19, verse 17, is his own cross. And both carry huge symbolic weight. In climbing onto the donkey, in the midst of all of this, it's as if Jesus is saying to them, I'm not that kind of king. I have not come to do that kind of thing. He is utterly rejecting their expectations. He is not the earthly Messiah of man's expectations. He is not the military, political, conquering king. He is Isaiah 9, 6, the Prince of Peace. And he is going to tell us much about the nature of that peace and how he is going to bring that peace in the rest of chapter 12. But it's not an earthly peace. It is not a political peace. He has not come to overthrow the oppressive regime, uh, regimes and, and to establish just governments. He has uh, come to do something far greater and eternally longer lasting. He has not come to clean up the kingdoms of this world, but to establish an entirely different kind of kingdom as an entirely different kind of king. He is the king of peace. Shalom. Not just the absence of conflict, but the, the presence of, of wholeness, of soundness, of completeness. Everything set at right, to at rights within and without. And doesn't that sound wonderful? Like actual peace, wholeness, soundness. But for there to be peace, there cannot be sin. Twice in Isaiah 48, 22, we just read. And 5721, we're coming up on it. God says that there is no peace for the wicked. And so sin is the oppressor. Sin is the occupying, dominating, ruling force that must be dealt with for there to be peace. And sin is the reason that the Christ, the King, has come. And we know that since the wages of sin is death, as sin rejects the God of life, sin accepts death. To deal with our sin, Christ must accept our death for us in our place. And so yes, in that sense, this very much is a triumphal entry because he is entering into the place where he is going to die and triumph through that death. They shout that the king is coming, but they miss entirely that he's coming to die for sin. And in so doing, to speak and bring peace. We have to be careful that it is, it, is, it is easy to misunderstand the Messiah, as the crowd does here. It is easy to seek Christ entirely for self. It is easy to actually be seeking self in your seeking of Christ. But we see here that this king will not bow to our expectations. He does not come to serve our sinful and selfish agendas. He comes to save his people from their sin. And so we do not get to say anything like, well, my Jesus would never, or, you know, I believe in a Jesus who, no, we, we've got to stop that. We've got to stop seeking to conform him to our image and expectations. He is the king, and he has come at this time to do one thing. And so you either take him as he is, or you reject him entirely. You do not get to redefine him. You do not get to wave palm branches at him and make him all about you or your agenda. He's the king. He is totally in control. And yet he is also the humble king of peace. But there's more. There's one last thing. That's who he is. That's his revelation to us. But who are we? 
How have we responded to him? Let's close with the response. Point number four, because this king of peace is also the king of conflict. Is that confusing? Is that conflicting? Not at all. Back to the text. Look at the responses to this scene and spectacle. Look at verse 16. The poor disciples. They don't understand at all what's going on. In the, other, in the synoptics, we know that Jesus has just specifically told them what he's coming to do. Again, they just don't get it. We're not any better. The disciples probably get caught up in the crowds crazy. But after looking back, verse 16 tells us, after he was glorified, meaning after his death, resurrection, and ascension, the pieces started to fall into place for them. And 16 ends up being a neat verse. It says, they remembered that these things had been written about him. Again, Zechariah, 500 years earlier, written about Jesus. The whole Bible. The Old Testament is about Jesus. They're beginning to get it. They begin to understand what had been done to him in this whole spectacle of a scene. Again, at the time, maybe they're getting caught up in all the political, exciting, military chaos. Now they're starting to understand what's going on. They now see what the crowd could not and did not see. They now see the true identity and nature of Jesus, the Messiah, the spiritual Messiah, come to die, entering in to die, to save his people from their sins. But the crowd just wouldn't and couldn't see it. Verses 17 and 18 show us that they saw the sign. They're bearing some sort of witness to him. Again, as we've just seen, and throughout John as well, we're getting indications that it's, it's the wrong witness. Again, they're, they're saying the right thing, but they don't understand what it means. They're unknowingly correct in proclaiming him the king of Israel, but 18 emphasizes that the crowd came only because they had heard he had done this sign. Again, so they, again, they, they've seen the sign, but they have not been able to see beyond the sign to what is signified by the sign. And as John keeps making it clear, this faith that is focused entirely on the signs not being led beyond them to the doer of the sign is not a saving faith. The signs are meant to point us beyond themselves to the Christ. They don't want the Christ. They see the sign. That's pretty cool. Well, who wouldn't want to see someone who could raise the dead? Who wouldn't be attracted to such power? Who wouldn't want to see uh, what you could get and gain from such power? And here's where we need to be careful. Here's where we can be little different than the crowd. What are you after? Why are you here? What, what truly do you seek? Because a saving faith seeks only Christ. A saving faith sees Christ as the sovereign, humble King of peace and wants Him. Eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ, His only Son. Salvation is knowing God and Jesus Christ. We should all seriously consider if He is what we want and desire. Do we love Him? And do we love Him as He reveals Himself to us here in His Word? There's so much preaching out there that in the name of Jesus is actually just preaching and proclaiming self and not Christ. Here's what you can get from Him. Here's how you can make your life better. Here's how you can feel better about yourself. Again, it just sounds more like the crowd. It sounds more like the Pharisees. Look at verse 19 and their response to all this. Because they've seen the crowd, they've seen the spectacle, and they don't understand it. And they say, you see, 
that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. My fifth point from verse 19 was going to be that he was the king of the world. It felt too Titanic-y and there was too little time. Um, but it is true. And this is actually a very important verse for understanding how John uses the word world. We, we tend to take John 3.16 and we assume and we argue, well, world has to mean everyone who has ever lived ever. That's just not how John uses the word world, as we see here. The Pharisees don't mean that everyone who has ever lived ever has gone after Jesus. It's just it's hyperbole. Look at that crowd. It's like the whole world is following him. But unbeknownst to them, they again, like the crowd, say more than they mean to. And this is masterful on John's part, as the very next section is all about the Greeks. They say, world, next section, here comes the world. Here come the Greeks. Sir, we would see Jesus. And that's what John generally means by the world. Not all people without exception, but all people without distinction. Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, but he is the king of the whole world. He is saving a people for himself from all the peoples, and the world begins to come to him next week. But for now, the Pharisees step back and they see this whole spectacle and notice their focus. It's simply gain. What are we gaining which is little different than how the crowd and many today think of Jesus. What can we get or gain from him for me? That's not faith. Faith is fixed entirely on Christ the King. Faith first sees the self and sees only sin, hopelessness, and helplessness. But then by the grace of God sees Christ and sees sovereignty and humility power and grace, beauty and majesty, and once him. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Christ the King. Is this the Christ that you have believed in? Have you bowed to him as king? Do you love him and want him for who he is and what he has done? That's faith. And it is only through faith that we find peace because it is only through faith that we are united to our Prince of Peace the king of peace. But what happens when you reject the king of peace? It's just logic. You reject the king of peace and you're left only with conflict. You reject the savior of sinners and you're left only with sin. You reject the Lord of life and you're left only with death. And here's how the king of peace is also the king of conflict. Christ is the dividing line. What you do with Christ determines your eternity. Nothing matters more than what you do with this Christ who is the King. What have you done with the Christ who is the King? I titled this sermon, The Coming King, because that's in the text. But not only because he's coming in our text, but because he tells us that he is coming again. Sometime in the future. And whereas this is the only time we see Jesus riding on something in the Gospels, we do see him riding on something one other time. And that's in Revelation 19. And this time, he's not on a donkey. We've seen what a donkey represents. This time, he's riding on a white horse. And verse 11 says, the one on that horse is called faithful and true. This is one of the most sobering sections of Scripture. 
is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He is the king. We just read about him in Psalm chapter 2. Kiss the king. He is in control. All rightfully is his. Again, how amazing then that the first time he comes, he comes as the humble king to lay down his life for his people to save them and to bring him peace. But his second coming uh, is of an entirely different nature. When he comes again, he tells us he will come in righteousness and justice to right all wrongs, to pay back all evil, and there is no greater evil than the rejection of the sovereign, humble king of peace. Have you bowed before him and received the forgiveness of sins and the peace that is bought by his own blood? Or will you continue to refuse and reject him? May this be the day of your salvation. May you repent of your sins and believe in him. He is good and gracious. But he is the king. You must deal with this Christ. And I plead with you to do so today. Bow to him. He is the king who is in control. He is the humble king of peace and conflict. He is the Lord. Turn to him and live. If you would bow with me, let me close our time with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your help. Thank you for your word. Well, your word is so wonderful. It is so rich and deep. To look long at it, we find such a Christ. We find a character unlike any other character in history. Father, there was no one like this Christ. There is no king like this king. Humbling, entering into the place of his death for us. Father, may that truth melt our hearts. May that truth give us great gladness and joy in him. Father, we love so many things. Father, we want to love this Jesus more than any of those things. So please show us Christ. Please show us who he is in all his greatness and his glory and his humility and his compassion, but also in his power, his, his authority. Father, he is the king. May all of us bow to him and submit to him as king and find him to be a good and gracious king who loves and serves and saves his people. Father, do now what I cannot do. Work in our hearts. Show us Christ. Give us a great love for him. We ask all this in his name. Amen.